All right. Well, we're going to start at the top of that handout, just with some review, reminding us of where we've been, so you won't miss out if you don't have it quite yet. Uh, So far, we've examined the importance of discovering first literary type uh, or genre of the text you're studying. Can anyone remind us, give, give me one example of a genre? Yeah, an epistle. Excellent. What was that? Historical, yeah, like a narrative, yeah, excellent. There is the poetry, right, prophets. Um, yeah, so those are some good examples of literary types or genres. Secondly, we discovered the, or we examined the importance of discovering uh, historical background. So there, that's really referring to things like who wrote it, uh, when did they write it, to whom did they write it, as well as the literary context of the text you're studying. And then number three, the theme of the book, where the text is found. So uh, as you guys have done some of this, just someone share, as you've done some of the homework, and actually let me back up, Uh, the homework. Um, We haven't been checking it. I'll follow in Pastor Farrell's steps of not checking the homework. Um, But I'm just curious, how many of you have been doing it? Wow, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. I would encourage you to keep doing it. It will be helpful to reinforce the things you're learning. Um, Let me just ask one question about that homework. You know, one of the things was to make all these observations, right? How'd that go? Did did anyone have... Oh, let me ask it this way. How many of you found that finding the 15 observations was no problem at all? Okay, a couple did. Okay. Well... Well, I think that's part of it. Initially, you struggle because you're thinking like, well, that's pretty obvious. I don't need to mention that. And part of the exercise is to teach you, no, just keep noting things, even if they seem obvious, uh, and you'll start pressing into the text deeper than you would thought possible. Good. Yeah, I would encourage you, even though we aren't checking it, do that, because it will reinforce what we're learning. Um, that would have just been like the the paragraphs right around, probably particularly the paragraph that the verse is located in. Yeah, a chapter would generally be something more like the near context. Yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, oh, and then we said the theme. Sorry, I got off track with the, uh, the, the, the um, homework, but picking up again, reviewing the importance of discovering number three, the theme of the book where your text is found. So that simply means that These verses aren't isolated. They're a part of an overall purpose to a book. And if you know that overall purpose, you're going to better be able to understand what each part is doing. Number four, the outline of the book and where your text is located in that outline. Number five, the far context and how your text fits into the larger flow of the book. Six, the near context and how your text fits into the near context both before and after your text. And now, that's all review. Those are things we've been looking at. And now in this lesson, we're going to look at cultural customs, word studies, and interpretation. But um, I'm going to take at least this week and next week on uh, this lesson. So we certainly won't get to interpretation today. So let's start into understanding cultural customs. The hermeneutical principle of cultural customs differs from historical context of a passage. What was historical context? We just reviewed it. Be things like 
What was that? Who wrote it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When, where, good. So those are the types of things that he's referring to with historical context of a passage. Um, the cultural context is you know, specific details that are related to what life was like in that culture. And we're going to look at some specific ones here, but that's important. Otherwise, we just simply assume similarity, and things may not always be similar. Let me just give you one example. If you're looking in Paul's epistles and you come across the word crown, well, usually in an English-speaking context, crown indicates royalty, right? Crowns are things worn by kings, And yet, like in one of Paul's letters, this would be a prize, a reward given to someone who's won won a race, right? We could say, oh, it's a wreath, but even that's a little bit confusing because in our context, wreaths are things you hang on your door, right? So you can see how there can be a little bit of confusion if you simply look at crown and assume it means what it means in your culture. So this is where we're going to look at tools that would help us to determine what would that mean in the ancient culture. So let's look at some examples. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. So this is the story of the Samaritan woman and Jesus' conversation with her at the well. And there are a number of things here that uh, are probably familiar to you because many of you have been in a church, has been preaching the Bible for some time, so you've heard it explained and you've heard the context being given to you. Really, just making a connection here, a lot of these principles that we're learning for hermeneutics, for inductive Bible study, are the very things that... um, your pastors do for you when they teach a passage, right? They're, they're explaining all of these things, so you're probably familiar with some of this cultural background. But let's go and look, for example, down at verse 9 of John chapter 4, where we read this. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, that's curious. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? What does that mean? So this would be an example of cultural context. There's obviously some kind of rivalry here, and how would we discern what exactly is going on so we can better understand the passage? And we're going to get to some of the tools. I'm just right now trying to draw out what would be examples of situations where you'd want to learn more about the cultural context. Let's actually go ahead back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This was a chapter you guys were in for your homework. And so we'll just pull an example from here. Second Timothy chapter 2. And I'll read for us verses 3 through 6. But as I do, pay attention to some things that in the text that might... Um, want to be explored, beg to be explored in terms of historical context. And when I get done reading, I'm going to ask you for some of those, so, so take note of them here. Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So it would be some, some parts of that, those verses, where we might benefit from exploring the cultural context. Go ahead, David. Good. Excellent. So, yeah, that'd be the first one, because that's like the first metaphor that's used, right? That of a soldier. Good. What's another one? An athlete. Excellent. Yep. And then what would be another one? The honor of work. Yeah, so... As you explore what work was like in that culture, you'll learn something about kind of what they prioritized, what they valued, the honor associated with it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what the farmer receives, how farming practices work. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Those are all good examples. Then you see in the passage there, um, it mentions things like Jewish weddings. And this comes up multiple times in that next paragraph, number two there. Uh, gives you several examples in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, or the wedding feast at Cana in John 2. We want to know what were weddings like. Jewish weddings were not much like our weddings. So um, maybe they were a lot like if we were to compare them to other types of events, but in some ways they're very different. So it'd be helpful to know something about that. So that all gives us kind of an idea of where we might want to in our study of the passage, find some info about the cultural background, but how would we go about doing that? Well, there's plenty of resources that we can use, and here are some listed. First, Bible dictionaries or Bible encyclopedias. I'll take those together because, in my experience, um, although you might be inclined to think that um, Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias would be distinguished based upon length, Um, often they aren't that clearly distinguished. You'll find a dictionary that's got many more volumes than something called an encyclopedia. Um, But they basically function similarly. Usually you'll just look up the word in English, whatever it is, wedding, for example, and you'll find an entry. And depending upon the length of the work, um, it may be one paragraph, or it may be a more exhaustive Bible dictionary or encyclopedia that will have 10 pages on it. So it's all about the one you go for, um, So in terms of general resource, you've noted Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, but that only helps you so far um, because some of you may be thinking, yeah, I can see the benefit of this, and I don't have anything like that on my shelf. So someone share with us, what's if you you have a Bible encyclopedia or a Bible dictionary, um, which one do you use? I've got some recommendations. I'm just curious to hear what you guys have been using. Vines, okay. Yeah, vines would be more of a word tool, right? We're going to come to that next. Um, Something like the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Notice it's illustrated, pictures, can help with many uh, many of these things. You don't just have to read a description, you can actually see what these things would look like. New Unger's Bible Dictionary is another useful one. Um. There's, there's a longer one called International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. 
and it's gone through two editions, but the older edition that was published in 1915 is actually available online for free. If you just go to uh, internationalstandardbible.com, internationalstandardbible.com, um, you can just look it up right there on the web and read it. And then it also has a newer version that was published uh, between 1979 and 1995, and that one's four volumes, but it's a good evangelical um, Bible dictionary, pretty extensive, four volumes, um, but really the fact that you'd have to purchase the, the four-volume one and keep that somewhere on yourself makes the older one probably preferable. Anyways, those are just some that I would recommend. Let's go ahead and look next on the next page, page three, at some other tools to help us understand the cultural context. There would be manners and customs books. So there's a lot of overlap between these tools. Uh, Many of the things you'll find in manners and customs books, you would also be able to find in a Bible dictionary. Um, So I would think that if you have a good Bible dictionary, you may not need another resource. Uh, But if you you were looking for one that's specifically aimed at manners and customs, um, an author by the name of Victor Matthews has one that's just called Manners and Customs in the Bible. Uh, So that's just one you might consider picking up. And then lastly, we have listed here good commentaries. And that's exactly right. Commentaries will often be very helpful for you because you can have all these different tools, and yet a commentary, a commentator, has generally just drawn from the most important resources and kind of compiled it for you and boiled it down to what's most relevant. So if you are looking for some good commentaries that are maybe a bit more than, say, your single-volume Bible commentary— Um, I would recommend something like an expositor's Bible commentary. That's a multi-volume work, but it isn't too detailed, doesn't really get into, you know, Greek or Hebrew, uh, or something like even the New American Commentary series. These are all ones that any of you could pick up and read and get some more detail than you would in a single-volume commentary, and it would explain for you things like uh, the cultural customs. And one more tool that's not listed here, but that is helpful for understanding not necessarily... um, cultural customs per se, but just some more of this this background would be an atlas, something that helps you to understand um, just the geography of the area. You know, you you read about Acts and Paul's travels, or even um, you might just be reading a particular epistle, and you see all of these references. You know, you might be, um, let's say, 1 Thessalonians, and you'll see references about where Paul had been, how he suffered in Philippi, and you're wondering, well, where were his travels? Explain to me how all this fits together, and they will give you lots and lots of pictures. Uh, there are many different ones, but the ESV um, Atlas is very useful with excellent maps, ESV Bible Atlas. All right, so that's what we have for cultural customs. Before we go on to word studies, does anyone have any questions? Go ahead. Not a question, Good, yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yes, it's a good word. <laughs> yep. And for sure, if, you, if you're looking to buy one, um, something beyond those ones I just mentioned, Expositor's Bible Commentary, a New American Commentary series, 
um, feel free to come to one of us, Pastor Farrell, um, myself, any of the other pastors, Pastor Jeff, they'd be happy to, to recommend something to you. Thrills our heart to know that you're digging into the Word and wanting to understand it better and utilize the best tools available, so we'd be happy to help you with that. All right, next, word studies. So word studies are going to help you basically understand words. We've talked about things like context, near context, far context, background, but at the end of the day, you need to understand what specific words mean. Um, For one thing, the easiest method for you to to use is going to be just to go to a dictionary, something like Vines, as as Jim had mentioned to us, um, is going to be useful. On the one hand, uh, our translations, we have translations available to us. Most of the major ones you guys use do do a superb job, and yet it's often helpful to go a bit beyond that because even if the word's not too complicated, translation is very, very difficult. When you have to choose one word to communicate one other word in a different language, that's not easy. And translators have a hard work. They often, I'm sure, long just to be a pastor, an expositor, a commentator, and be able to give a sentence to explain it. But they're limited to finding one word that will work to capture it. And so uh, I would assume, generally, as you're reading your English Bible, that your translation is giving a good uh, translation, a good equivalent for what's really behind there in the Greek or the Hebrew Um, But sometimes when you want a little more detail, the best thing to do is go to a dictionary. Now, I'm saying that because where we're going to go is going to tell you kind of how to do your own studies, your own word studies, which is wonderful. But doing word studies can be complicated, and just the principles involved, the fallacies into which we can run are are numerous. And so I'm assuming most of you won't do that. We're still going to walk through some of this so you better understand how a dictionary is made um, and what those principles are. But I would say just on the front end here, by and large, um, yeah, just find a good dictionary that will simply explain those words to you. Um, And we're going to talk a bit about what that looks like here. Next, let me say this. Context is overwhelmingly the most important thing. I found that often people, when they're wanting to study, they just get caught up in word study after word study after word study. And those are good, but words only carry so much meaning. And then as, you, as you'll see, when we work through um, seeing how word studies are done, they largely depend upon looking to the context. You guys know this. You may hear a word for the first time, a word you've never heard before, but you often infer what it means from the what. The context. Yeah, the context is often what's going to reveal it. And in a word study, um, a detailed word study, the essence of it is you find as many uses as you can, and you infer from the context what that word must mean. So the point is, we can microscopically tunnel down and look at what individual words mean, but often just serving the context will give you a very good clue. And I'll just emphasize that context piece one more time. While there are all kinds of things we do, Um, To understand a passage, at the end of the day, context, meaning, what does that look like in practice? Just read it over and over again. If it's 2 Timothy, just keep reading it, getting the context. That is far and away the most useful thing you can do. Um, Sometimes you might sit there if you don't have lots of tools, if you don't have much training, if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, and just think, how am I ever going to understand it? And I would say, as someone who teaches Greek and Hebrew that you can get 99% of all of that just from understanding the context. 
reading in English over and over again. So that's a plug for context generally, literary context, and then specifically when it comes to word studies, um, paying close attention to context. Let's go and look briefly at the beginning of B here, one way of doing word studies. And then I'm going to kind of insert uh, just some more thoughts here about how word studies are done. I'm going to focus here on English. That way you guys get an idea about how the process is done with a language that's familiar to you. So this was humbling actually for me because as I was reviewing these notes, I realized that I wasn't familiar with how to use um, Strong's. And I think that's just because all of, all of my notes and all the work I have done has been just going directly to Greek or Hebrew, and I realized somehow I skipped the step, and this is something that's basic that many of you could come up here and could explain. So I actually had to go into the library and learn how to use one of these tools, which was a bit uh, humbling, but strongs. So essentially, you're going to find a concordance for the Bible translation you're using. So that's important. Concordances should be paired up with the Bible translation you're using. If you're using a King James, get a concordance that matches with the King James. And the reason is because you're going to look it up according to an English word. And then you're going to see a list of every time that English word is used. And you're going to go down. It's going to be in um, canonical order, meaning the order that it appears in your English Bible. So Genesis would be at the beginning. Uses in Revelation would be at the end. And you're going to find the one that's in your passage. And then it will give you a number that is a reference to the Greek or Hebrew word behind that. So this is how you begin to figure out what, what Greek or Hebrew word is back there behind this English translation. And then with that number, that number is now going to be keyed to the word. And now you can use any other tools, and most tools like dictionaries to explain Greek or Hebrew words will utilize this Strong's number to help you look it up. You might say, well, seems like a silly step to use numbers to look it up, but the alternative would be having to learn the Greek and Hebrew alphabet to be able to utilize the dictionaries, to be able to look it up in an original source and see what that word is, which becomes much more difficult. So um, these concordances and Strong's numbers enable you to make that move from the English translation you're using to the Greek or Hebrew word behind it, and then be able to see a definition for that without ever having to know Greek or Hebrew. Does that make sense? Raise your hand if you've done this process using a concordance. Yeah, a lot of you have. Wonderful. I feel ashamed, but good. <laughs> I commend you. All right. So let's just do a little exercise here. Um, you won't need to follow along. I'm just going to help you think about basically how a dictionary works. Um, and we're just going to use English here. I think because it's just going to be a little bit easier, we'll use a familiar word. Um, so first of all, what is a dictionary? How would you describe a dictionary? What does a dictionary do? What's it for? Seems obvious, but go for it. The volume that gives you the meaning of a word. Good. It gives you the meaning of a word. And it's basically, we would say descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing how people use that word, Right. So it's not necessarily going to say the way it's going to be used in the next 20 years. It's probably going to change, but it's describing how it has been used. So there can be a bit of a question there. Well, then how does that, what relationship does that have to some book I might be reading? 
if, if he's not prescribing how that author must use that word, but the explanation is that when authors use words, they have to use those words in commonly understood ways, right? If you suddenly use a word in a way it's never been used before, people aren't going to understand you. And then that dictionary is just documenting the way that those words are generally used. So yes, it's describing the meanings that are usually associated with certain words. And now, how do dictionary makers go about doing their work? You don't have to answer that. I'll, I'll, we'll walk through this. I'm just <laughs> letting that sink in. It's, it's a, probably a question that some of you are, are nerdy or thinking, yeah, that's really interesting. How do they do that? And other people are thinking, oh, I never thought about that. I don't care to. All right. Basically, they just survey the usage of a word and list its meanings. So in, in the older days, um, they would essentially keep card files. I probably need to explain card files to, to many people, wouldn't I? Um, but card files where they would just keep all kinds of uses of the word, whether they were from a magazine, from a newspaper, from a book, so that they can when they're getting ready to write their dictionary entry, see a wide range of how these are used. These days, they, of course, just use electronic tools. Google could pull up a whole lot of them. But the point is, they need some way to have a database of lots and lots of uses of this word. Remember, we said it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's describing how, how the word is used. So you need to start with a big um, a collection of uses. And then they're going to simply list the different meanings that that word can have. So let's take a very easy word, boy. We'll define the word boy. So how do we move from observing a usage to determining a meaning? Let me give you some, some thoughts here. If I begin my survey of uses of the word boy, and the first use of the word I come to says this, the boy Peter was brilliant. I could list meaning number one. Peter. Boy means Peter, right? The boy Peter was brilliant. Well, it's pretty obvious. Boy refers to Peter. So the first meaning would be Peter. Then the second use might be the boy was stunted in growth. So I could list another meaning. Number two, something stunted in growth. So now we have two meanings so far for boy. Number one, Peter. Number two, something stunted in growth. How are we doing? Are we on the right track? <laughs> no. The, the problem here is that we've confused the meaning with the referent, what it refers to. So we could keep going with all kinds of boys' names, right? And those could keep adding up. Or all kinds of qualities of a boy. Strong boys, weak boys. And pretty soon we begin realizing we have no idea what boy even means. Because we've gone about it all wrong. So what are we to look for? And how do we move from usage, actually observing the words as they're being used to determining what they mean. We need to try to discern from the uses what is common to them. Let me just give you another example. You, you see a bicycle, and you're told that's a bicycle. Now, how would you distinguish the color of the bicycle from the fact it has two wheels? You know, the fact it has two wheels is relevant to defining a, it is a bicycle. All bicycles should have two wheels. But the fact is red isn't necessarily relevant. Well, how do you distinguish those? Well, you would see more and more occurrences of a bicycle, and you would begin to discern all of them have two wheels, but they aren't all the same color. Hopefully, all of them have handlebars. All of them have tires, hopefully, if they're working. So you can go on. They have pedals. 
Um, so you're just observing a wide range and seeing what is common to all of them. So as we would work through uses of the word boy, we could begin to observe some, some common meanings. Hopefully, all of them would be human beings. Although I guess we sometimes refer to like boy dogs, right? Boy cats. So that could be a little confusing. But generally, boy refers to human beings. It usually has some kind of gender specificity, right? Usually refers to a male, a male human being. So we have so far. And also, it's usually going to refer to being of younger age, right? So now we've got some kind of limitations, some things we're observing in all these uses. Human being, male, younger in age. And now we're starting to actually get much closer, much closer than we were before with Peter and stunted growth. And sometimes we come across uses that are very helpful. For example, consider this usage. Courage is what distinguishes the men from the boys. Well, that's helpful because now we have two similar words, men and boys. And now we've got something, it's, the statement itself is actually trying to distinguish them. So that's helpful. We're now able to distinguish related words. But it's also not entirely helpful because it could begin now to seem that boys are necessarily lacking in courage, right? Um, which, it's actually how we sometimes use it, right? Sometimes a man might refer to another man who's 40 years old as a boy if he's acting like a coward. Isn't that interesting? So we use these words in a wide range of ways, and so courage actually sometimes can be a part of the meaning of man, and lacking it can be a part of the meaning of boy, but it's not consistently a part of it. So we see that such a usage as this one is actually difficult, meaning uh, the the one about uh, courage is what distinguishes the men from the boys, and if we're not careful students of words and their meanings, it could be misleading. So, next... So we're continue thinking about boy, we have to distinguish what is common, a kind of a common core of meaning to all of the uses from a semantic range or a range of meanings. Here's what I mean by this. On the one hand, you can look at all of them and try to sort out what's consistent and common to all of the uses, but sometimes we have a different use of the word that it really is just a different use of the word. It's not necessarily something we need to find a common core among all of them. Let's give you an example. I'm realizing this, this, this whole example here is one that was written for teaching in Malawi, and I think this is a use of boy that they, they use. Boy's quarters, like in terms of, I guess it'll work, it'll make sense. So boy can sometimes be used for like a servant you have. If you have someone who, a garden boy type thing, or even a girl would be, Um, A grown lady who works in your house, does dishes, that kind of thing, mops the floors. Um, So often, at least in that context, they would have a kind of a house, a small house behind their house where those servants would stay. And they would often call that the boys' quarters. But this is interesting because we've just said that one of the features of boy is often of younger age, right? But now this begins to challenge it. So I might initially just impose the meaning I have already discerned from another usage because it might initially appear to work. I mean, I come to boys' quarters and I assume this must be housing for human beings of the male gender of younger age, right? But I would begin to quickly realize that doesn't work for some uses. I might come across a usage like this. 
our servant went back to his room in the boys' quarters to get his shoes before coming back into the house where we surprised him with a party for his 50th birthday. Now, wait a minute. Now this boys' quarters is housing a 50-year-old man? Is it really boys? And so you can see now how these other uses now are beginning to challenge it. So now, if we're trying to find a common core of meaning to all the uses, we may say, okay, it's clear that of younger age is not a common core. So we scrap that. But based upon your knowledge of what boy means in English, would it be appropriate to completely scrap the the younger age piece? No, that's often present, right? So this is where we're beginning to see this, not always just about finding a common core of meaning. Sometimes you've got to use a different meaning. I mean, you've got to have this separate option. Sometimes it means this. Sometimes it means this over here. Trying to uh, wrap this up for you because this, this illustration with boy could get pretty, pretty long. Yeah, so here's how I'll wrap this up. I'll give you one more example. Um, sometimes you might find certain examples where uh, a personal pronoun is used. My boy, your boy, his boy. Now, we might begin to notice that in many of those contexts, it's actually persons referring to someone who has a familial relationship, parent-child relationship. Now, it doesn't say my son, it just says my boy, but for some reason, whenever that personal pronoun is used, it seems like the relationship is there. And so that doesn't necessarily begin to mean that my indicates a familial relationship, but what we, what we are noticing is... Um, trends, patterns, that whenever this one word occurs, it often means this over here. And so a principle to take away from that is that as you are um, looking at how words are used, notice that when they're used in association with certain words, they often have certain meanings. Does that make sense? These, these connections will often be useful. In certain contexts, um, these meanings are used for this word. In other contexts, these meanings are used. And I'm saying that because one of the most difficult things in doing word studies and applying those to a particular passage well is that once you lay out a whole list, let's say four things a word can mean, you then have to decide which of those is the meaning relevant for this context. And this is where it gets to be a bit more difficult because if you aren't careful you're simply going to choose the meaning that you like. Well, how do, we, how do we refrain from that? It could be the meaning I like because it's going to preach well, it has cool implications, it has cool applications, or it could be it, it supports my theology. So you can see by, by observing other words that occur along with it and noting that some of these words consistently occur with a particular meaning is a way that's um, going beyond our own personal preference to help us choose the right meaning. Now, another principle related to that when it comes to this. As you look at a dictionary, let's just say, let's say you go, you aren't doing your own word study by looking at all these uses. You just simply go get a dictionary and look it up. And you're going to see a list of possible meanings. Sometimes people misunderstand that those are alternatives. The word doesn't mean all of those things. But we often, when we're interpreting, we want to get you know, kind of as, as robust and as meaty an interpretation as we can get. 
The more meaning I can pack into my interpretation, it sometimes seems the better. And yet often we're reading things into the passage that aren't there. So when you use a dictionary, choose between the meanings rather than assuming that they are all there. All right. So where I want to um, just kind of finish this for us with regard to word studies is by just considering some, some more call them fallacies, some ways we just need to be careful about misusing word studies. And we say parenthetically here is, if you're sitting there and thinking, wow, this just seems overwhelming, um, I think it is a helpful point that this is why trying to do your own word studies and look up all the uses of a word and develop the range of meanings and choose which one is best, it really is kind of an overwhelming um, thought and attempt. And so even though this document, this handout, begins to show you how to do that, the best thing to do, rather than looking up all the uses, is probably to use that Strong's number and just go to a dictionary, like Vines, that will say, these are the meanings available, and does that for you. Granted, dictionaries are not authoritative, but they're going to be able to do a much better job than you generally will to be able to, to do that, and they've already done the work for you. All right, so just some various ways that we can and go, go astray in our study of words. One is that we notice compound words, and we assume that if we can simply break them into, into their parts, we will get the meaning. And I'm just going to give you two, two very common examples from English that are often mentioned, uh, but they're helpful. Can we understand what a butterfly is by breaking it down into its two parts? How about pineapple? That might come a little bit closer, right? Pineapple might be like a, I don't know, a, a piney apple. But you can see that it's still not going to get you very close, right? But yet often when we come to a, a word that's in another language that we aren't familiar with, we can't see the absurdity of doing that. It's not transparent. And so it's important just to keep in mind from a principle, be cautious about simply breaking a word down. Now, sometimes that will help you. But only do that if you don't have, say, lots of uses of a word together. Let me give you an example. Um, there's a word in Greek that if you break it down, uh, the, the core part of it would mean something like a rower. And then it has this preposition on the front that could mean under. And so some writers have said this means under rower. And a rower who works under deck is a very lowly rower. But every use we have, except possibly one in all of the Greek of the ancient world, it simply means servant. And there's only one case where it could possibly even refer to someone who's rowing on a boat. One case out of thousands. And yet often people say it simply means under rower just because of the breakdown of the word. When we have so many uses, and from the uses, it clearly just means servant. So uh, that's just an example where you have to be careful. Another one would be um, the word behind assembly, or often our translations, church. Right? It simply refers to a group of people gathered together. This word would be used just throughout the ancient world for any type of club or group that would assemble, get together in town for something. And the church is one of those, right? Early on, you don't really have a, a, a proper name for church. In our world, church specifically refers to a Christian assembly. But for them, they were just using a common word. This is the, 
the Christians getting together. They're assembling. And yet, if you do look at the, the breakdown of the word, you could break it down to mean called out. And so now it seems to have a kind of a theologically robust meaning, but yet, if you look at all the other uses um, in town at that time in the ancient Greek world, they just don't seem to have any connection to that kind of theology. And so it makes you wonder, when they were initially using it, did, were they thinking about that? Um, and most likely not. So one would be, just be careful. Sometimes it can be useful, but don't immediately assume that if you break a word down that's a compound word into its parts, you'll understand its meaning. Another one would be, um, be careful of noticing a connection, you know, where we've got an English word that's related to a particular Greek word, and then assume that whatever it means in English relates to what it means in Greek. So, I'll give you a quick example. There's a Greek word, dunamis, which is related historically to our word dynamite. And dunamis does happen to mean power. And dynamite didn't get its name without any connection to the Greek. It, it has a connection, right? Power. Dynamite has power. And yet, if you simply, when you read about this word for power in the New Testament, just simply think of dynamite, it's going to be a bit confusing. They didn't have the dynamite back then. So they weren't even thinking in those categories when they're using this word for power. So just be aware of those, those steps where you go from Oh, that, that's similar to a word we have in English, and this is what the word in English means. Therefore, I'm going to assume it must have meant the same thing in that ancient context. Another one, and I sort of already alluded to this one, would be what we call like a selective appeal to evidence. Sometimes people will say, and this is kind of something to be wary of, say, in commentaries. Someone might say, oh, here's an example of this word meaning X. And then... So this is what it would look like applied to this other passage, and that's why my, my interpretation is correct. Well, that's fine, but just because that word means that somewhere doesn't support the fact that it should mean that here. And so there still needs to be a, an argument made to show that that is the best meaning in this context. But sometimes it can just be a selective appeal to evidence. You just simply choose the evidence that supports what you want uh, something to mean. Another um, just example of a way we, we need to be cautious sometimes would be that sometimes we take from a, a word that's used in, let's say, in systematic theology, in theology, theological studies, we might take a word that has a connection to it's used in the Bible. It's a biblical word. And then we give it this more developed meaning. Let me give you an example. Sanctification. And when we use that word, in this context, when I use that word, we almost always mean this progressive transformation of a person through the Christian life, from the time they are converted until the time they're glorified, this ongoing change. And the word, as you find it in your Bible, sometimes means that, but sometimes it also means this, you could call it like a definitive change. The moment you're converted, you become sanctified. You can see this in many uses, like when Paul writes to first, the, the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, um, he refers to them as saints, those who have been sanctified, and yet they clearly aren't all that transformed yet, but in terms of what God has done in them, they've already been devoted to him, kind of set apart, devoted to him, but they, they still need to work that out in their actual life. So that'd be an example where we take biblical words and 
because of our theological study, we, we kind of attach it to an idea that's a biblical idea, but then we assume that that word must always have that larger meaning whenever we find it, and that may not be so. All right, so let's go back to your, your form there, the, the handout. And on page four, you'll see there are some references to easy-to-use word study tools. The first one there is Vines, uh, which is the one that Jim had mentioned to us earlier. That's a useful one, Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. So these would be resources in which you would, to which you would go with that Strong's number and then find a definition or a list of possible meanings and then he gives some other ones there. Um, further down the lower half of page four, Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament, Robertson's Word Pictures in the New Testament, Wiest's Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. I would just say that um, the, the last three, Vincent's, Robertson's, and Wiest, are probably all going to be a bit more technical, um, but Vines is a very easy one to use. Now, as we go over to page five, we're wrapping up here. Uh, the study of words. And this warning that is given is kind of re- recounting some of the things I've already mentioned, but it is very important, so let's pay careful attention to this. Remember that context is what gives meaning to words, not concordances, dictionaries, lexicons, or word study books. Just a little footnote here. Lexicon just refers to basically a dictionary. It's another word for a dictionary. Word study books and resources only give you the range of possible meanings. We noted that. But do not always tell you how the word you are studying should be translated in your specific passage. Therefore, you should not just assume that the definition in the word study resource is the right definition for your text. Study the context and find what definition fits the context best. And we should make a connection back to something else I said earlier. Remember I said that literary context is just so important? You can see that a word study doesn't get you past literary context. To even know what the right meaning is in this context, you've got to know the context. And so just because of this redundancy built into language, often if you simply know the context, you just read the book over and over again, it will help you so much. You'll be right in knowing what the word means most of the time and won't even need to, to do some detailed word study work. Uh, Picking up where we left off, some word study books categorize definitions according to various contexts called semantic domains and try to help you determine the meaning in your text. Yet remember that those who try and determine the meaning of a word in a text may get it wrong. Um, When he says um, they categorize them according to semantic domains, he simply means they might put them together based upon a common meaning. So here's all the words that would refer to like human organs. Now, here are all the words that might refer to like a mind, thinking, those types of processes, rather than having to look them up alphabetically. All right, and then finally, let's note that uh, D on page 5. Not all passages are benefited by word study and cultural background studies. That's exactly right. Sometimes a word in the Greek or Hebrew means just what it does in English. That's often the case. Many passages do not have items which have cultural significance when studying large sections of Scripture. Word studies and cultural customs may not be practical. And to that I would say amen. 
Just be cautious about that tendency sometimes to want to look up every word and think that every word must have some profound significance if you just do enough work on it. Because often it just simply means what it seems to mean in the English translation, which should be an encouragement to you. If you just keep reading your English Bible, um, it will be the primary pathway to better understanding it and to better understanding the Lord, better understanding what he expects of you. Questions? Comments? Yes. Good question. Um, I'm trying to think of one. I, I, I'm not sure in terms of one that would just simply be working with like the English using Strong's. Pastor Phil, do you know? Okay. Yeah. If anyone else is using one. Okay. Yeah, the theological word book of the Old Testament. That is a good one. Yeah, and that one does use Strong's numbers. So you could look that up. That's a great recommendation. All right, other questions? Yeah. A great one. Um, it's good because it's doing all the work and pulling it together for you. So it's more of like a composite tool. It's in those notes. Wherever there's a relevant, you know, word, uh, uh, a comment about the meaning of a word, it's going to tell you. Whenever there's a relevant cultural background, it's going to bring that in. Wherever there's something relevant to know about when it was written, um, where it was written from, to whom it was written, it's going to comment on that. So it's useful because a skilled interpreter has already done all the work of deciding what's most relevant and then making a concise note for you. So I would call it like some kind of composite tool in the sense is bringing all of these different areas together and making it very easy for you right there within the binding of your Bible. Is that what you're looking for? Okay. Yes. Yeah, good. Yeah, I would, I mean, study Bibles are tremendous. As you're trying to study your Bible, um, study Bibles can be very, very useful. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. Yes. Good. So let me make sure it's clear to everyone else what you're referring to. Usually there's another portion of the concordance, usually further back, where you can, for example, look up that Greek word and see, let's say it's translated four different ways throughout that translation. It will tell you how many times it's translated each way. So you get an idea of the range of meanings it can have. That's what you're referring to, correct? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you for mentioning that. That's that's a useful comment. Yes, because of the various words they use. Yeah. yeah.
Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, it is difficult. Go ahead, David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's generally true. I found that sometimes Puritans um, will kind of skip over just explaining the text and go immediately to application, which is good. The primary benefit that I found with reading the works of Puritans, they're going to help you think about how to apply it, and they don't apply in superficial ways, do they? They think deeply about how this applies, and they're going to press it deep into your heart. And that's very useful, but sometimes they go directly to the applications and don't stop over to say this is simply all the text means. And so if I'm looking to know what the text means first, not just how to apply it, sometimes you will find that in there, but not always. Yeah. All right. This was good. Thank you for your engagement. Hopefully that was helpful. Let me just close this in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I thank you for uh, just the ability, the tools you've given us to be able to understand it rightly. And I pray that even as we continue working through this and thinking about method and interpreting the Bible, that you would just continue to uh, whet the appetite for working hard to understand your word rightly. May we never grow weary of working hard at that, just knowing that since it's you, our Lord, who have spoken to us, Uh, no expense in trying to understand what you have said is is, uh, wasted expense. And so I pray, Lord, for all of these as they hear about these different angles. May they not grow weary, but may they um, just hear the the common thread coming through and put those things into practice. And as the word becomes clear to them, may they be tremendously encouraged. And Lord, we, we aren't interested simply at stopping at a right interpretation. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would use that word rightly understood to transform us, to renew our minds, to help us put off wrong practices and put on right practices, that we would be transformed individually, and that as a local church, we would be growing more mature. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.